I'm an abolitionist at my core, but I also work in law, <laughs> right? So it's very interesting. But I also think that like, in order to abolish something, you must first master it. Uh, and so for me, I understand that there are going to be generations of lawyers that are coming out of school and they're being taught a white supremacist narrative of what tradition, history, culture, precedent, right? Even what has a legal standing and can be viewed by justices or judges uh, is, right? And I have to disrupt that because I have the knowledge to do that. And so I don't really see myself as really necessarily working within a system. The question for me is always, where do you disrupt it, right? And so I'm always trying to expose the law for the lies it tells. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always ask the question when, I, when I'm in class with my students, and I'm, tonight I'm teaching advanced critical race theory, but I always ask them, you know, okay, so here's the law, where's the lie? Like whose lives are being lied about? Who's being erased here? And what are the stakes? The Grow Dialogue podcast is a liberation project that explores equity, inclusion, belonging, conflict resolution, and culture in the workplace and beyond, including in our personal relationships, families, and communities. Each week, my co-host, Mariella Marie, and I will bring you insightful guest interviews and artistic expressions curated to amplify emerging voices who are sharing practices that support society's transition to a more collaborative, just, sustainable, and liberating coexistence. We live during a time when divisiveness and polarization dominate the social, economic, and political discourse. In response to this reality, and empowered with the skills of authentic dialogue and systems thinking, I created an anti-oppression framework for social sustainability called Theory of Indivisibility to help illuminate a different path forward. Our hope is that these conversations and calls to action will ignite tolerance and empathy and provide guidance for our global listeners who want to actively engage in ending all forms of oppression while creating thriving relationships in the workplace and beyond. I'm Dr. Sunjata Sunjata. Let's grow dialogue. All right, here we are. Anansi, Dr. Anansi, thank you for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to finally make it. <laughs> yes, yes. The people need to hear your voice. And I know that you, you know, you get an opportunity to do that often, but you know, through this platform, we're gonna spread your message and, and who you are with, with even a broader audience. So again, I'm just excited that you agreed to be here to share your voice with the Grow Dialogue uh, audience and listeners. And um, what I like to do to, to start with uh, all of my guests is ask the question, who are you? How do you define yourself? Mm. I always tell everyone first that I am a child of Latoya and a grandchild of Willamé and a great grandchild of Elamé. Um, you know, I think that so much of the work that I do uh, both in my professional academic life, as an organizer, as a lawyer, as a law professor, uh, as a partner, right, as a community member, uh, comes down to the lessons I've given by my mother and my grandmothers, right? Uh, so I think that in, in many ways, a lot of my work is what, you know, Professor Christina Sharp would call care work. Um, and how do you make sure that you're engaging in the caring and tending to of Black folks and Black lives? I mean, so often we hear this stuff like, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, all this, but like, what does it mean to like make Black lives more than just mere matter, right? Just something that you merely consider or merely the kind of makeup, you know, of atoms and, and, and flesh. What does it mean to actually tend to Black living, right? As opposed to responding to the threat of Black dying. And so I think that's what my work is about, whether it's, you know, writing poetry or essays or law review articles, or, you know, being in a court or, you know, being on the news and kind of explicating these issues from a kind of Black queer perspective. Uh, I'm uh, from Kansas City, Kansas side, <laughs> the land of true barbecue. You know, I know everyone else likes to have their barbecue, but you know, the real, the real truth is in Kansas City. Okay, okay. And um, how, how would you say your upbringing has, you know, or growing up in Kansas City, you also mentioned your mother and your grandmother is, is a deep part of how you define yourself. Can you def just share a little bit how your upbringing in Kansas City and these mm -hmm. two women's influence on you have impacted mm -hmm. who you are uh, today? 
Yeah, so you know, I grew up both in Kansas City and then in like Southeast Kansas and rural Kansas, a town of like, I would say 7,000 people. Everybody there that was black was my cousin. Uh, and that was half of the town. So it was a very different experience of moving to the city uh, when I was older, maybe like 12 or 13. But you know, uh, single parent home, my mother had me when she was 17. Definitely had a lot of struggles with domestic violence and also, you know, drug uh, dependency. And, you know, people talk a lot about people that are addicted to drugs, but I always try to step back and say like, what is the world that we've created that people need drugs to escape it, right? And so drugs oftentimes operate as a type of self-care and not a deficit of someone's morality or their character. So I try to always, you know, state that when I'm talking about my mother and other people. But because of my mom was dealing with this and dealing with abuse, you know, I ended up raising my three younger siblings for the most part. And then, you know, also being raised not just by my grandmother and my great-grandmother. It was so great to have that many different generations uh, in the same town, but also my great-aunts and my great-great-aunts and my first cousins. Right. Uh, and we're all in the same town. You know, you're running around. You know to come home when the street lights come on. Maybe your mom didn't see you, but your Aunt Pearl around the corner saw you and you better get your little self home. Uh, so there was that type of community always there for me. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that really, in, really instantiated this idea of like, what does care look like? You know, and what does it mean to have regard, not just for the black folks that are related to you, but black people because they're human beings. Uh, and, I, and I got that that type of deep rearing from like the sensitivity of my mom, regardless of what she was going through, just kind of give her the shirt off her back, but also the, the pragmatism of my grandmother, Willa May. She wasn't a religious person. She wasn't about that at all. She was very involved with like black power movements and things. But her, her thing was like, how do you get power? Power is how you get free. As long as you're not stepping on anyone's neck to do that, you're doing the right work. Uh, so just having those different generations and having it being women-led, uh, women that weren't concerned about, you know, my sexuality or my gender, they cared about how do you feel, right? What's your opinion? Uh, and being asked your opinion at five years old, I think is something that is truly liberatory uh, for Black children. Oftentimes we're told to be seen and not heard. Uh, and sure. so the fact that I was demanded to speak and required to memorize Langston Hughes and then recite it and then critique it, uh, you know, told me what it meant to have an opinion and how important that was, you know, at the age of five, six, seven years old. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing that so at a young age, your voice was cultivated. You were encouraged to exercise your voice, to use your voice. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of young people, as you said, they're told to be seen but not heard, stay in a child's mm -hmm. place, et cetera. But it sounds like you have some really um, some people in your life who really empowered you and encouraged mm -hmm. you to yeah. pull that out of you. Yeah, and I wouldn't even just say encouraged. I would say demanded. <laughs> right? Okay, it's that like, is how different. It's a different you. energy. Yeah, it's like, how dare you be silent? Did you not see what happened? Did you not bear witness? What's your testimony? Uh, and it was just this idea that like you've come out of my daughter's womb. <laughs> we worked this many hours to make sure you go to school. So when you go out into this world, you're a representation of us and every ancestor that came before you. So you will know Langston Hughes. You will know James Baldwin. The first book you read will be I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And I want a chapter by chapter breakdown, you know, and you're gonna you're gonna tell me all about it in your five-year-old mind. <laughs> we'll wow. revisit this at seven and then again at 12. But it, it was just that demand that like my grandmother always knew that I'm not always going to be there to speak for you, mm -hmm. you know, and you're the first grandchild. So what you going to do? <laughs> right. Wow. So you you were definitely, um, you know, they had a vision for you and they and they helped to mold uh, you <sighs> in an intentional way. I, and and that's that's pretty awesome. And even, you know, even through the struggles that you share with your mother and, and with mm -hmm. drug abuse and everything, you still had enough supportive community around you that could still cultivate your intellect. Um, you know, in spite of some of those challenges that you spoke to, you know, experiencing and seeing as well. I think that's, I think that's amazing. And, you know, as I listen to your story, I can relate in the sense that I grew up in, in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I grew up in a big city. However, my father was from Apalachicola, Florida, which mm. is a very small town on the panhandle of Florida. <laughs> like, like you explained that you grew up in. So every summer, I would literally leave the big city, drive mm -hmm. with my family down south, and spend a month or two in Apalachicola, <laughs> where, like, <laughs> like you said, half the town was my cousins and yes. you know, family, et cetera. So I, I got to straddle both of those worlds mm -hmm. um, you know, as a young person growing up. So I could definitely relate, um, and I could definitely relate to you know strong women, you know, in my life with my grandmother. But I also had my grandfather, who was a strong influence on me as well. So one of the things I noticed in your story is that you mentioned a bunch of women who were strong influences on your life. So I'm curious, did you also have any strong, you know, male figures in that in that family space as well? 
Yeah, so it's it's different. And I, I won't say that the men weren't, you know, strong. And I mean, we can define what that means in many ways, yeah, you know, right? I, I noticed that as I said that, but I'll let you <laughs> Yeah, but it's interesting because the women, when I mentioned my mother, my mother's the oldest, but she has five younger brothers. Okay. <laughs> and my grandmother is the middle child, but she has mostly sisters, and then her brothers are all younger than her. And then my great-grandmother has like five brothers, but again, she's the oldest. So it's different because like the women are also the elders. There's okay. something else going on here. And okay. my uncles were men of few words, but large actions. They worked. You know what I mean? They they my grandmother would purchase a house and all of my uncles would go with my grandmother and they would and my grandmother too would remodel the place and flip it, right? Buy these little ten thousand dollar shacks in rural Kansas, sell it for fifty thousand or a hundred thousand and then spread it out among the family. Um so the men, they didn't really have a lot of opinions as much as they would share about things, but they were more so about like, we will do the work and we're gonna teach you how to fix anything. So when something happens, you don't gotta call nobody white. Okay. <laughs> you don't got to have money to get by. So it was like a different type of utilitarian thing. Whereas like yeah. the women were more intellectual. Okay. So, so and, and, and further, when I, when I say it's strong and when I think about that, in my mind, I'm thinking about like a strong influence on me. Mm -hmm. When I use the word strong, and I appreciate you pulling that out in terms of allowing me to elaborate on what I meant by strong. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandfather, so he was just, you know, he was that presence, you know, he was that very overarching presence not only in our family but also in the whole town because he was a uh, the principal of the uh the black school and during segregation um and then when integration happened in that small town he became the principal of the integrated schools as well and then he went on to be and it was one school in the town you know one mm -hmm. elementary school and one high school mm -hmm. and uh so for him to have that role you know he was kind of this large figure throughout the whole town you know mm -hmm. he, he demanded respect in, in every area in that way and you know so when i say strong i mean like a strong influence in that way mm -hmm. um yeah you know education was was really big in, in my family as well because of that on that side of family at least so um so yeah that's i i, I definitely am tracking yeah. you know how that age you know dynamic plays a role you know could have played a mm -hmm. role in your family as well um, so let me ask you this, you know, you mentioned the women in your family being supportive of your sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. How do you identify uh, in terms of your sexuality? Uh, I definitely identify as, you know, a black queer person. Um, you know, people might just say queer. I say black queer. It's a coin that I, a term that I coined when I was in college, spell it B-L-A-Q-U-E-E-R. Uh, just because for me, you know, there's not really a separation or a space where my race and sexuality depart, right? You know, we talk a lot and I know we're going to get more into kind of like that the work and the intellectual things later, but you know, we talk a lot about this notion of intersectionality. And my problem with intersectionality isn't that it isn't a brilliant theory, it's just this idea that for somehow my my identities and the things that impact them are meeting at an intersection of a road, like they just met each other, <laughs> you know what I mean? But the reality, this has always been me, they've always been co-forming. I just got the language, you know what I mean? So there isn't a place where I arrive that, okay, I identify as black and now I identify as queer, whether I identified or not, <laughs> this was the reality that's co-forming the ways in which I'm read in the world. You know, sure. so definitely identify as a black queer person and specifically yeah. black because queerness can be weird too. <laughs> okay, definitely going to come back to that. Definitely going to come <laughs> a little deeper on that. So, but before we go there, <clears throat> I want to ask, like, how did, in terms of your evolution in the world that, that I grew up in a world that wasn't, that wasn't open, that wasn't kind to people who identified as queer, mm -hmm. gay, or just say LGBTQ plus anywhere on that spectrum, um, you know, so I'm curious, uh, you know, if you're comfortable sharing, mm -hmm. was it hard coming into that knowing at a young age and gaining acceptance in your family dynamics or were you supported pretty much throughout? Uh, it was definitely hard to start. It was kind of, I would say, almost like a bifurcated experience. So when I was living with my grandmother, even when I wasn't living with her, she would always tell me every morning, every night, you know, uh, you know, I'll love you forever and ever and always. As soon as I woke up in the morning and before I went to bed, and you know, people would ask, you know, are they are they gay? They have a little sugar in their tank, yada yada yada. And my grandmother would just like be like, it doesn't really matter. You trying to sleep with my five year old grandchild? Like, what you trying to? <laughs> you know what I mean? So there was always that check. And also, my grandmother was always like, if you have something to tell me tell me because it's not going to impact any way that I deal with you but like I think that for me more of the struggle was internal and I think this is a lot for black people too that you know we weren't even really raised in the church but the church's influence was so heavy my great aunt Levon, my grandmother's older sister was very much in the kind of evangelical you know tongue speaking world and so she would always be like trying to take me down to the altar and you pray the gay away and oil and all of this and I didn't really know what was going on I was too young maybe second 
third grade. Uh, but you know, as my mother started to really struggle and I moved in with her in Kansas City with, with drugs, you know, I joined the church myself. I got ordained at 14. Other gay boys, black kids, we met on High Five and tagged online. And there was about 50 of us. We literally had a prayer line where we were trying to be like, God, how do we be our full selves while also not like going to hell? And it's the kind of whole thorn in the flesh type of thing. But by 15, I was just like done with that foolishness. I was like, I'm, I got my full scholarship. I'm out of here. But at the time, at first, it was hard for my mom. Uh, my mom's bigger thing was like, I don't want you to get AIDS and die. Uh, but it, it was a point where I didn't talk to my mother for a full year because she just couldn't accept it. And I was like, I'm not going to be emotionally cannibalized in this way. Uh, but yeah. after that, it literally was like, even my homophobic <laughs> drug dealing uncles became my biggest defenders. You know what I mean? And so now I'll go home and it'll be like, someone will say, you know, the F word this, F word that. And my uncles will be like, wait, what? Or my little my little cousins will like, be trying to fight for me. I'm like, listen, it's not that. Listen, I understand how black people talk. I understand it's offensive to some folks, but like, I'm, I'm good. I don't need nobody to fight for me. So so that's, that's good to know. So it sounds like you basically kind of knew that knew this and accepted this about yourself, except that you were mm -hmm. queer at a very young age. And mm -hmm. the process of your family accepting you, you know, emerged over time as well. Um, mm -hmm. the point where it became like your big, biggest, you know, supporters and advocates. And I love to hear it, you know, um, I've, I know it can be fearful. I have people in my life, I have people in my life right now who are still afraid to come out to mm -hmm. their, their parents and, you know, for fear of being shunned, et cetera. And uh, one of the things that I always felt, and I'm totally empathetic, and can, I, I can understand why someone would want to protect themselves in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I always believed was, you know, by coming out, it, it gives our family an opportunity to empathize and learn and open their minds to these things in ways that they may not be forced to if they're not confronted with someone they love identifying differently than what generally is the culturally accepted norms around mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. sexuality and gender and all these various things, mm -hmm. um, you know, so and it sounds like that's what happened, you know, with, with your family. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, to some extent, I'm just thinking, too, about like what you were saying. And I, I also feel like particularly if you come out and you're like a queer person, like your gender embodiment doesn't look like the so-called normal straight man or a straight woman or what have you. I think it does something even more powerful. Uh, so I realized that like with my family, especially my uncles, after I came out, they were much more free to talk about their emotions around me. There wasn't this kind of like masculine threat that I got to be a man around you and do this and that. Like wow. they would tell me how they feel. They asked me for advice. Like wow. the same thing, even more so with my aunts. <laughs> you know what I mean? And wow. so it's, it, it, and my family has always had a kind of queerness to it because it's a woman run family. And so that means that women aren't just cooking and cleaning. They're also hunting and shooting. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? My grandmother's the best shot in the family. And right. so when you when you add that onto it, like what is this idea of a male that's a patriarch and protector when the women are the better shooters? So right. it completely changes the whole ordeal, right? So I, I think something happened there. And I think that also me being queer with this like different gender embodiment, you know, if I want to wear a crop top, I'll do that in rural Kansas at home. If I want to wear some little hoochie daddy shorts, I'll do that too. I think that has allowed the, the men and the women to also question the ways in which they repress their gender presentation. They might be straight as hell for lack of better terms, but now my uncle feels okay with having this little tight shorts on and having his thighs out. You know what I mean? Because right. he's been shown that like, actually I don't have to show up this way. And, and I think that sometimes it's really hard for people to accept you because then they have to look back and think about what are the ways in which I've been policed as a child? Mm -hmm. Who did it to me? Like, how do I now relate to my mother and father because I got my butt whooped because I was playing with dolls or I wanted to paint my nails or I was a tomboy. And like, so now how do you think about that? Or how do you think about the way that you discipline your nieces or nephews or your children? And so I think sometimes it's hard for people to accept someone being queer or having a freer gender embodiment because it then more forces them to deal with the ways in which they police themselves and they police others and the people that they love the most might have caused them the most harm. So I think there's a lot of like subconscious things that are going on there that if you accept me as a true free human being that has a valid identity, then what does that mean for yours? Man, that so many things, so many things, so many powerful things that you said within there. Um, so many things around the ways that patriarchy uh, and and let's say masculinity more more so like toxic masculinity impacts you know us and those who identify as men, cisgender, you know heterosexual males. Um, that even if they identify as that, 
in terms of like gender, gender identification and expression and all these things can show up on a spectrum that have nothing to do with your sexuality. And mm -hmm. I feel like people are starting to accept that, embrace those those variations and, and you know, um, the complexities around those things. <clears throat> and, I, and I love hearing that, you know, your uncles, you know, felt more comfortable, you know, speaking to you they felt like you were safer, but also it's kind of sad because it's like, man, this mask that, you know, cisgender heterosexual males wear, how we, you know, in the ways that we knowingly and unknowingly uphold patriarchy, that we're not even a safe space for each other. It's like, mm -hmm. I can't be my full self with another dude, you know, mm -hmm. who is again, cishet, um, mm -hmm. because of judgment, fear, all these mm -hmm. things. But with women, I could be my full self or with man I could be my full self mm -hmm. and you know just acknowledging that and just hoping that one day you know men you know or people just no matter how they identify can get to the place where we're just open and accepting and mm -hmm. you know, not afraid to be our full selves mask off uh, yeah really love us I think that's hard though right because on the one hand it's definitely you know as Bell Hooks tells us it's obviously on men to kind of figure out what the hell is going on with gender and masculinity but at the same time like gender is learned Right, we're born with the sex where gender is learned. And the reality is for so many of us, we learn gender through our mothers, <laughs> right? So we talk about like men and toxic masculinity, but oftentimes that masculinity is actually crafted yeah. and beaten into you yeah. by your mama, your grandmamas or your aunties or what have you. You right. know, stand up straight, put some bass in your voice, stop playing right. with dolls. And like we often talk about these coming from men, but many of us come from single parent households or only women focused households. And so, so much of the gender that we learn actually comes from women. And right. it's policed, especially for straight people, via the women they date or want to appear attractive to. So I think that like we do this interesting thing where we're calling out men as we should do. But I think that also we have to remember that gender and like toxic masculinity is a community performance that is mandated and scripted. And when you step off that stage, <laughs> the things that you lose are very, very real. And I also think that like women do a thing with gender too, right? whereas they don't allow themselves to occupy particular types of spaces and relationships. And so I think that like, we're all dealing with gender and gender itself being toxic. So I don't even know that I believe so much in the kind of toxic masculinity or whatever we say about femininity. I think that gender in and of itself is a really kind of crafty and toxic prison to exist within. I agree, I agree. You know, it's a social construct and it's harmful indeed. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, humanity as a whole would be better off if we just rejected it and got rid of it. Seriously. I, mm -hmm. I agree. Um, so, and again, as I'm listening, I'm relating in so many ways. And one of the ways that I'm relating is like when you mentioned that you didn't speak to your mother for a year, uh, I went through that when I came out as polyamorous. You know, I came oh, out wow. as polyamorous back in uh, 2017. And unfortunately it, it ended my 15 year relationship to my now ex-wife. And it caused it caused a huge ripple, you know, uh, in the family dynamic. And, mm. you know, it was hard, man, it was hard. <laughs> I get chills just talking about it because you, mentioned you step off a certain stage, you lose a lot. And mm -hmm. I lost a lot, you know, I lost a lot by coming out and standing in that truth, which I suppressed mm -hmm. for so long once I came into that understanding about myself. Um, and unfortunately, I came into that understanding of myself five years into a monogamous marriage. So, um, man, I wish I would have learned that about myself earlier, but yeah. you know, that's life. Um, so, but when that happened uh, amongst a lot of fallout from family, friends, et cetera, um, mm -hmm. and others, um, I, I had a fallout with my father and I literally had to block him and didn't talk to him for over a year. Um, you know, as a result, you know, of people thinking that I was choosing this and they just couldn't wrap their minds around me really being able to be introspective enough to 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 come into this understanding about myself and test it out in terms of my mm -hmm. mental you know capacities to really figure out if this is true for me etc 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 yeah but um so yeah you know i i, I know it's different wow. than what you know queer people face but you know, it's something I can kind of you know empathize mm -hmm. with. I, I faced it in this in this like relationship orientation. Uh, yeah. 
And I mean, in some ways, that almost feels more, you know, and I don't know if we can say something that's more or less traumatic, but just hearing that feels even more traumatic to me that, you know, you're in your adulthood, right? You're not like a 16 year old that is trying to figure out this is the way my body feels, do what you want with it. But you're in adulthood, you're in a marriage and like people that are seeing you this whole time, maybe even being codependent, interdependent on you are cutting you off or trying to publicly discipline you over the ways in which you choose to date or be in relationship with people. Not the gender or the sexuality, but the fact that you're no longer in this partnership and you're exploring what partnerships work for you. I mean, like, that is just so crazy. And I think that for me, that didn't really happen with the non-monogamy part of me. And I'm not part of, we go back and forth to non-monogamy, monogamy. It's cause like, it's whatever works for you in the moment. Um, but at the same time, like, I think that my, my family was like, you're queer, so you just gonna do whatever type of crazy stuff you gonna do, so we right. accept that. But like this idea of like, you know, like your father not talking to you and then just kind of thinking about like, what is that about? Do you think I'm a bad representation of you? It's like, to experience that as an adult yeah. versus as a youth is just like a completely different destabilizing situation. So I just can't even, I imagine I, I might have blown up the city. I don't know what I would have I, I appreciate it. I appreciate that acknowledgement and that and that that empathy. Um, so, if you don't mind, could you define queer, especially you know, instead of like in contrast to gay? Can you can you define that for? Yes. Yeah, so, so 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 the white LGBT community has tried to bastardize the word queer and make queer and gay mean the same thing, or to make queer be an umbrella term which it is not and it will never be okay. <laughs> so gay is just you know someone generally a male right these are generally gender specific terms uh that is attracted to the same sex right that's essentially just what it is whether you date people or not whether you are even engaged with sex or not that's right. on you it's just about the physical attraction maybe there's not even a romantic attraction right yeah. maybe you're bi and you're attracted to men and women maybe you're attracted to trans people as well but that's a whole other conversation queer is generally speaking it's both a sexual identity and it's a political identity mm -hmm. so when we think about like the queer rights movement we think about pre-stonewall the idea wasn't that you know lgbtq people are supposed to be just like straight people that's the kind of gay rights argument the normative we're just like you we want to get married there's nothing different about us queer people are demanding this idea that people actually deserve to be treated equitably in society so queerness by definition is this idea of being strange or weird or outside of the mainstream it's a critique of the norm right oh. so in by virtue of being queer right you're not trying to ingratiate yourself into this kind of normative society so queer people are generally those that have a political orientation that is actually about a deep critique of the system as we know it and this idea that people are wholly different but still deserve equitable you know treatment and equitable opportunities not equal right but deeply equitable uh so you'll often see you know the queers it might be having crazy hair colors it might be really doing something that's different it stands out and that's fine but the idea is that it's not just this kind of performative queerness that we hear today kind of in no shape of the homie Lil Nas X but this idea that like okay you're doing this and that and you're in pink and you're doing innovative videos nice but what's the political commentary so queerness is generally a sexuality plus a political commentary and there's this kind of argument now that straight people can be queer which is like okay girl whatever you say <laughs> but it generally queerness is about a kind of political ideology and a political stance uh, and a standing outside of the norm and critiquing systems of power as they currently exist but it's kind of gotten subsumed by white lgbt people uh, who have kind of like taken this term to now be a kind of overarching term so people aren't held accountable to their politics thank you Thank you. That was a very thorough explanation <laughs> and, and I get it. I get it. So as we transition into um, going deeper into our theme um, and, and, and how that, you know, plays into the work that you do in the world and the ways that you show up um, in terms of uh, providing care, you know, through your work and the ways that you model, you know, identity and how that, you know, influences, you know, change. I want to speak to you know, our theme of popular culture and mm -hmm. how it, you know, relates. And when I think about popular culture, I think about the systems, the ideas, the beliefs, the social norms, et cetera, that a majority of people in society have embraced and accepted. And for this podcast, the Grow Dialogue podcast, we seek to amplify the voices of people like yourself who have stories and initiatives that we feel like need to be a part of larger popular culture conversations. 
-hmm. So with that being said, I know that you have the platform and the identity of being black queer. Mm -hmm. So you touched on it, you explained what it was. Um, what I'd like to know, I guess is, um, I love how you said that black queer, it speaks to the intersectionality of you identifying as black and queer and how they are not separable. They're, mm -hmm. they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. One of the things um, that I've noticed that has really bothered me when I'm having conversations with people um, is when, and, and, and let's say I have, you know, friends, family, I hear people say things like, um, let me see, the, the, the LGBTQ movement or the gay movement, mm -hmm. um, you know, they are like, harmful to, to black people or something like mm -hmm. that or mm -hmm. it, they don't care about black people and or mm -hmm. just various statements like that in my mind I'm like but don't you realize that there's a lot of you know LGBTQ plus people who are quote-unquote black or of African descent or African-American etc like they separated and I, I never understand mm -hmm. why people speak in a ways like quote-unquote LGBTQ plus people are different than quote unquote, mm -hmm. black people. Have you heard that line of thinking? Do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I mean, I hear that all the time, particularly on like toxic spaces like Clubhouse, uh, you know, some radio spaces, some like Twitter club rooms or space rooms, whatever they are. And yeah, so I hear that kind of all the time. It's really, really interesting. Um, okay. And I think it speaks, <laughs> I think it speaks to one, uh, the miseducation of black folks. Okay. Um, the idea that like, you can be a black person living today and not know the ways in which black queer people have affected your life and made it so that you could even be free right i mean you think when people say things like this I'm, i think about like wow do you not know james baldwin That's like you, you know what i mean like did you not know that malcolm x was bisexual like did you not know that the man that organized the whole march on washington was a gay dude who was being profiled and harassed by the fbi and really lost his whole profession for organizing that for you so you don't have to drink at a colored only fountain. Like do we think about someone like Pauli Murray, who was actually the legal architect of the civil rights movement, mentored Thurgood Marshall and wrote the new Jane Crow article. Uh, and like basically was, you know, what's her name, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's mentor as well. So she both broke down the color line and the gender line. Like right. I, when I, so when I read about these things, I'm like, you not know Langston Hughes? You talk about the Harlem Renaissance, you not know they were all queer? Like, right. So right. I started hearing these things on the internet, like it's heartbreaking to understand that like my people have no idea who they are, mm -hmm. no clue. And it also is crazy to me because we understand that 13% of the population, 39 to 13% of the population are queer people, like, and that's any racial group. And so if you think about that, well, I would say LGBTQ people. And if you think about that, that means 13% of black people. So that means one out of every 13 members of your family is some type of gay, bisexual, gender non-conforming whatever person and they don't get the space to exist in your mind or in your presence because of this little ignorance so i wonder about the type of harm that you're doing to other people in your family that you say you love to the children that come next maybe even to yourself and the deep level of ignorance that that speaks to that you don't even know your own history yet you have a platform to say something crazy yeah that is just wild to me it's crazy that's that's a good that's I, I love you were just like you know it's, it's, it's interesting and then it's, it's just wild <laughs> and it's crazy and I think that's that's the only place we can put it right um and and you know so the sad thing is you know when you said you know do you not know your history and the reality is a lot of people don't um because it was erased it was hidden you know mm -hmm. um, they weren't you know we didn't come up being told that you know these some of these people that you mentioned were you know on the LGBTQ plus uh spectrum in some way because again they just weren't allowed to exist for so long they were written out of history so now we live during a time where we're seeing you know lgbt lgbtq plus people written into into you know the the modern day stories and yeah. it's so rattling the people now so now we have popular music where you know uh some of the lyrics and the themes and videos etc are now showing what's always existed we have mm -hmm. TV shows that you know i would say probably is coming to my awareness probably in about the last 10 years or so where we're now starting to see these type of relationships mm -hmm. being shown in popular culture in that way on tv mm -hmm. and movies you know etc and it's again that's very jarring for so many people and people are like oh it's the gay agenda and you know all these things hollywood is trying to turn you know xyz us you know 
queer like it's just the madness in my mind you know when i see these things and people say these things you know it's it's wild but then there's a side of me that says you know what unfortunately they don't know so what can we do to continue to you know increase that awareness and kind of do the things we do and kind of have empathy for those people do you think those yeah. people have empathy <laughs> i don't know what they deserve uh i, I would say you know because like i mean on the one hand there is like as we were talking about earlier as i was talking about earlier i think a lot of people are resistant to queerness and you know uh gender freedom whatever that may look like gender expansiveness because if they take that seriously if they take the idea that you are so called naturally i don't really care what nature means right but <laughs> naturally who you are then that also again forces them to look in the mirror right and think about the ways in which they were beaten into being who they are uh, you know, a lot of people will sit here and they will talk about, to your point, this kind of gay agenda where they're forcing it upon us. I don't want my kids watching this. They're going to become gay. And I, you know, there was a post on Facebook today that really just had me cackling. But this lady was like, you know, y'all grew up watching The Cosby Show, you know, all these black TV shows with like these married families, you know. And like, how come you still single and you can't keep a partner? You got 50, 11 kids and it's no shade. I don't think you need to have you know, a partner to have kids, but like, why didn't that rub off on you? Right. You right. know, the success didn't rub off on you. Getting a job didn't rub off on you. Being educated and reading books didn't rub off on you, but being gay will. So like, what is really going on here? Which one is the contagion? Cause I'm not, the math isn't mathing. Um, so I don't know that, I don't know that I have like a lot of empathy for people. I feel sad for them. Um, but I, I very rarely have empathy for people that are doing harm. You know what I mean? Because I'm more concerned about the little child in the living room that hears their daddy saying this crazy stuff on Clubhouse, right? And now knows that like, if my father knows who I am, I could be harmed or I could be abandoned or I could be unloved, I could be beaten. And now having to hide within themselves. And so that's the part we don't talk about. You know, we talk about with police, which is really important. We talk about racial profiling. Uh, and I wrote this article uh, maybe a year or two ago about sexual profiling and not just the ways that like white people do, but the ways that black people sexually profile each other, right? And what does it mean to be a black queer child in a black cishet household to mean that you're literally hiding within yourself from the pl in the place where you're supposed to be the safest. So how do you even know what safety is? How can you have a consensual loving relationship when you actually are at war with your own body? Like right. you're being taught to police your voice. How high is your voice? Where do you put your hand? What is your wrist doing? How, how are you standing? How are you walking? And this as a child, by the people you love, and you're worried that your body might betray itself? You know, and so when I think about that, I think about straight black people as the police. <laughs> so I don't got a lot of empathy for, you know, uh, the dude that killed George Floyd. I ain't got empathy for him. Right. Right. You knew what you was doing. Even if you didn't, if you regarded people as human beings, it wouldn't matter what they were doing. You wouldn't have killed them. Yeah, it would never so get to that level. It never got to that point. And I think that in our culture, the murder is not just physical because we see black trans women getting killed. You know, average lifespan of 31 or 32 years old in America. But also we see the emotional violence. And the, and the disregard, right, that happens. We know that like black LGBT youth have the whole highest homeless rate in America. That's disgusting. Why are children homeless? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so yeah. when you ask me about empathy, I'm like, I'm kind of more rageful because how dare you? I respect you know? it. I respect it. I respect it. So getting into more and deeply into black queer, black queer and, and how that impacts how you, well, let's say this, you coined the term um, mm -hmm. and now, you know, others attribute it to you. Um, mm -hmm. and I imagine that it's been something that has been, has given life, you know, and to a lot of people and helped a lot of people feel seen. Can mm -hmm. you speak more to black, black queer and as a platform and, and mm -hmm. how, you know, you, you use that platform to, to do your care work? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I actually came up. Uh, with this term when I was in, I think my freshman year of college and I was in again, Christina Sharp's class, Memory for Forgetting or Black Feminist Theory, one to two. And I had gotten sexually assaulted. And so we were trying to figure out like, how do I mentally work through this while not dropping out of school? Again, first generation high school graduate, college student. I'm not <laughs> losing my college over this is what I've been working for. Uh, and I started this like blog on Tumblr, right? Called like Black Riff Low. And I started on Tumblr and then it just started getting all of this traction. 
I think my junior year, I moved to WordPress. I was getting my 50 or 60,000 views a day or readers a day. And then it was just like, I started having other black queer people come and write for the space. And this was all a little, a little website I'm running out of my college dorm. You know what I mean? Uh, and it started a lot of uh, well-known, you know, writers that we know now. You know, you people might know, you know, Harith Ziad wrote for us for a little bit. There's a lot of great people that have come through this space, you know. And so for me, it's really been a space where, like, how do I bear witness to my own life? And also, how do I give other Black queer people and then some other queer people of color the space to witness themselves and do that in a way that's also intellectually rigorous? Right. Uh, there was a there was a series that Hari Ziad and I did when Hari was writing for their blog Race Bader, and I was writing for Black Queer Flow. Where we actually did like a kind of brother to brother series of letters between each other that were published right every other week, and I ended up putting it in my first book. Uh, but it, it's just this idea that you know you can you are not alone. Number one, and Black queer people exist across space and time. Uh, and so when I started getting emails from folks in South Africa being like, I love your blog, why isn't it up anymore? Where have you been? Uh, it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking, but also it's great to know that type of impact. So what I've tried to do with this is move from just having the blog. Now I just uh, started the Center for the Study of Black Life and the Law at a Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. And it's the first institution in the country that's focusing just on black people and the, and the law as it's written and as it's enforced. Uh, so I'm really happy that that even there has a queer, a black queer focus at its heart. Uh, so the platform for me has been about bearing witness to the ways in which the law and society orders and disorders black queer living and dying. Um, and it does that in various ways, uh, both through policing and the law that's written, but also the ways in which public benefits are doled out the ways in which families police children, right? The way that healthcare resources are, are doled out. Uh, and so it's been really, really important for me to kind of do this work and then to think about the law, think about society through the lens of a black queer person. Sure. You know, we think about with the law, we'll say the reasonable person. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you'll see that most often is if someone gets stopped by the police, did you feel free to go? And the standard is, well, would a reasonable person under the circumstances feel free to go? And no surprise to you, it, the reasonable person under the circumstances is always, always an upper middle class white man who the police basically work for. But if you're a black trans woman, do you ever feel free around the police? Right? And maybe, again, maybe it's a black trans woman. Do you feel like the police are they're about to stop you? So do you run? Right? Maybe it was reasonable for you understanding the history of policing with folks that look like you, move and love like you, maybe it was reasonable to run. Right. But it wouldn't have been reasonable to run for the upper middle class black white man because he wasn't gonna get shot nowhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've, yeah. I've been trying to kind of intervene in the law and try to think about what does it mean to be reasonable and getting that underlying anti-blackness and anti-black queerness out of there and exposing it for what it is. Mm. I love it, I love it. So, you've chosen to go the route of law. Mm -hmm. I, I can share with you as someone who, you know, I personally consider myself an anti-oppression, I would say anti-oppression activist in the past, but now I expanded to say, I got away from the word activist and I say I'm an anti-oppression organizer, facilitator and content creator. And one of the things that I've noticed about myself and my work and how I move through the world is I tend to reject systems that I believe are harmful and where I believe harm is at the, at the foundation of you know, that particular system. And mm -hmm. also from learning systems thinking through my doctoral studies and then mm -hmm. self-studying it afterwards, I'm, one of, I'm someone who believes that you know, reform isn't the, the, the solution. I believe creating new systems that are designed, that have designed to harm out mm -hmm. are the, is the solution. I believe people mm -hmm. living the reality of a world that we want to see in, in terms of each system and in the ways they intersect is the mm -hmm. solution, creating those models, et cetera. However, when I think about the path that you've taken in academia and in law, it mm -hmm. seems like you've chosen to say, I want to make an impact from within the mm -hmm. current systems that exist. Can you speak to that, that, that differing approach and how you may see the two? Yeah, uh, so I don't even see it really as a different approach for me because for me it's always both in. You know, I'm an abolitionist at my core, but I also work in law, <laughs> right? So it's very interesting. But I also think that like in order to abolish something, you must, you must first master it. Uh, and so for me, I understand that there are going to be generations of lawyers that are coming out of school and they're being taught a white supremacist narrative of what tradition, history, culture, precedent, right? even what has a legal standing and can be viewed by justices or judges uh, is. 
right? And I have to disrupt that because I have the knowledge to do that. And so I don't really see myself as really necessarily working within a system. The question for me is always, where do you disrupt it, right? And so I'm always trying to expose the law for the lies it tells. Uh, and I always ask the question when I, you know, I'm in class with my students, and I'm, tonight I'm teaching advanced critical race theory. But I always ask them, you know, okay, so here's the law. Where's the lie? Like whose lives are being lied about? Who's being erased here? And what are the stakes yeah. for that? Uh, so for me, it's actually trying to hold the law to account to actually what we what we mean when we say, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For who? Sure. At what cost? Uh, but on, you know, when I'm not at work, <laughs> I'm also in these streets, right? Organizing for a different abolitionist future and also doing creative writing on that on that scale. So I think that like, for me, I'm just a type of person where I use every tool that I can, that I can wield. And I think that that's an ancestral practice. I think about, you know, when our people came over on those first slave ships, they actually took whatever they could to survive. Or maybe it's jumping over the ship and even to do that. <laughs> Right. In a place yeah. where you don't speak the language of all these different looking black folks, ain't the concept of black yet. <laughs> but you made a way out of no way. And so I think that like that is the kind of ch the carry on tradition uh, that I try to rise up to. Uh, so wherever I'm at, I'm going to be doing that type of work. I love it. I love it. And I love the both and and I believe it's necessary, even as someone who tends to be an outside the system person. Mm -hmm. I believe that there are people who have that both and I believe that both are necessary. I'm going to say mm -hmm. it like that. I believe that operating anywhere on the spectrum of complete abolition and turning your back on systems and creating the new or those who are straddling both i think it's all necessary they don't have to be in competition with one another um yeah, no. so let me ask you this this is as we get near our close here um another question i'd like to ask uh, all of my guests is is there a story that inspires your work is there like a story you can point to that has been inspirational to you that really guides you and has inspired you in some way I mean, there is a, a story, and I really hope their, their book is a little bit delayed, but I hope it comes out shortly. Uh, goodness, his name is Channing Joseph, and he's writing a book about uh, William Dorsey Swan. William Dorsey Swan, thanks to Channing Joseph, is known as America's first black drag queen, uh, first drag queen period, and they were enslaved person, you know, born in the 1830s. And there's a story of them, you know, wearing this amazing dress in DC in the like, I think it's like 1850s, 1860s, or what have you. Uh, and they're having a ball, you mm -hmm. know, uh, something that we might, people might relate to in seeing Pose, but also more of like actually like a tea party type of thing. And so all of the people are there and they're dressed up in what we would maybe call drag or maybe even cross-dressing. It's really not clear whether this is a performance or their whole identity, but they're having this tea party at their house and the police come and try to raid them. And so as everyone else is running out the back door, William Dorsey Swan throws themselves down the stairs at the police and tells them you will not enter. <laughs> you are no gentleman, sir. And so we think about the Stonewall riots as the first time people are kicking back, but you have a person who was born in slavery, who has been described in the newspapers at the time of being a regal uh, woman dressed as fine as the queen in white silks, right? These trailing dresses. How do you get the money to even make this, right? In the wake of slavery, right? Uh, and they were they were sentenced to jail all the time. It was like, okay, it is what it is. I'll be back, <laughs> you know? And so this kind of early black queer resistance really, really resonates with me, particularly when they didn't even have a language to describe themselves. Powerful, powerful. So can you share your vision for the future as it relates to your platform, your black queer platform, as you think about what the future, um, let's say as your work continues to manifest and you have more reach and more success, you know, what, what is your vision for, for the future in that? Yeah, I mean, I would think I would like to, and you know, not just like too much hubris. I, I don't know what like, you know, the vision for my own work looks like in that way, but I do have a vision for the impact. I hope that, you know, by the time that, you know, I go on to the ancestors, go on to glory, whatever you want to call it, that I have the same impact as someone like Amaya Angelou has, right? That I've left, you know, a kind of a, a trail, right? A kind of litany of for survival, as Audre Lorde calls it, that Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks have. That maybe you don't always just agree with me. Maybe you don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. But something that I've done has left you in a way where you can actually move from surviving to living to thriving right where black people and queer people of color and black people and really anybody can pick up a text that i've written or see a speech that i've given or see the intervention i've done with law and actually create a grammar to describe their own lives where people are empowered 
to bear witness to themselves and also testify on behalf of other folks without fear or even with fear and do it anyway. Uh, so I just hope that, you know, when I go on and die and stop having to pay rent or a mortgage or whatever, that I have, that my ancestors proud, uh, that I've left more love than harm in my wake. And that's really all that I can, that's all that I can hope for. I love it. I love it. So, you know, as we close out, I want you to, you know, share with, with our listeners and watchers how they can follow you. And, and before that, though, I just want to say that, you know, it was probably, I don't know, three years ago now that I first encountered one of your posts on Facebook. And that's how I began to know you. And I remember someone shared something that you wrote and it was so powerful. And I had to reach out in your inbox and said, hey, can I send you a friend request? I would like to follow you. <laughs> and, you know, you are, you are one of and probably the only male presenting queer person that lives out loud without a mask, that's not afraid to show, you know, all the different elements of who you are, whether it's your professional or whether it's your personal, that mm -hmm. I've had the privilege of following that has expanded mm -hmm. my mind um, on how, you know, queer people move through the world and the challenges, their joy, their, 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 their fears, their concerns, their life. And for me, because I'm someone who is intentional about wanting to expand my worldview in those ways, you know, following you was just, it was, it was impactful in a very, very major way. Um, so I just want to say thank you for, for, for being brave and having the courage to be who you are and to be yourself especially as a person of African descent, uh, a black queer person who says, I'm me, I love me, this is who I am, and I'm gonna live it out loud and proud. And that has helped shape my worldview and given me more language, giving, more, giving me more empathy, helped me expand my tolerance. If I've had to unlearn the toxic things that I learned you know, mm -hmm. around homosexuality throughout my life. And um, so, yeah, so thank you. Yeah. And for those who, you know, want to, do the same, you know, mm -hmm. and, and and follow you in, in whatever capacity you would like to share. Please let them know mm -hmm. how. Yeah, and also thank you for that uh, affirmation. It's always a blessing to be a blessing. Uh, and also, again, credit to my mother, grandmothers, great-grandmothers and aunties and all those folks, uh, the queer folks that came before me. Uh, but I would say if you want to follow me, the easiest way to do it is probably Twitter. Um, the handle is BlackQueer, B-L-A-Q-U-E-E-R, Flow. Um, and you can follow me there. That's the easiest way. I'm pretty responsive most of the time. So. Awesome. So we, we will uh, put that into the show notes. And uh, again, I know that you're very busy, you know, <laughs> as, a, as, as a law professor and all the other things that you do in the world for you to carve out a little time here to be with us. You know, I don't take it lightly and, you know, sending you much gratitude and much love for who you are as a person. I uh, can't wait to continue to follow, um, you know, all of your work. And, um, you know, for all of our listeners, I appreciate you all being with us, he being here with us once again. And until next time, I love y'all. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Grow Dialogue podcast. Remember to join our Grow Dialogue community to continue the conversation, activate authentic dialogue, and to get exclusive content, discounts, and special offers on curated artwork and music from independent artists from the Americas. Check out our show notes for more info and visit www.growdialogue.com to join our live events. Don't forget to support us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support.